was good to have that time of quiet. On the way up here, we were subjected to 20 minutes of CNN. <laughs> I don't know how you survived this out there. <laughs> I was giving a talk <coughs> last winter at an insight meditation center back east, and the topic of insight came up. And someone in the group said, you know, what our teachers teach us about insight is it's all about letting go, letting go, letting go. And he said, that may be okay for Dharma teachers because they live a very easy life. <laughs> but for those of us in the real world, it doesn't work. How are you going to survive if you just let go of everything? And I thought to myself, it's come to this. <laughs> Dharma teachers have an easy life. <laughs> but I could sympathize with the question because that's a lot of what you hear about what insight is. It's all about the reflections that may allow you to let go of whatever's burdening the mind. And it's all about letting go. The Buddha himself, though, didn't teach in that way. He basically said there are two kinds of causes of suffering and they have to be treated in different ways. There's one kind where you simply look at the cause of suffering and it kind of withers away. And there's the other one, you can put it in easy terms, is that you look at it and it stares right back at you. Um, it's not going to go away unless, as the Buddha said, you exert a fabrication against it. So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about what he means by exerting a fabrication and why it's necessary in order to overcome a lot of the causes of suffering in the mind. <clears throat> Excuse me, I swallowed something the wrong way this evening. It's still down there in my, in my lungs. When you look at that theory that all you need to do is let go of things, it's based on a particular attitude about the mind or an understanding about how the mind works. In fact, the idea that this would take care of everything is based on the idea that to begin with, your mind is passive. And it, it gets disturbed by sensory input coming in. And because it has the wrong map in its mind about what reality is like, it will react. Um, and then its reactivity is what causes suffering. Now all you have to do is give the mind the right map, realizing that there is no permanent self and the things that come to disturb the mind are not permanent. Um, once you see that for yourself through the practice of just watching things arise and pass away, arise and pass away without trying to react, without trying to judge them, um, you'll come to the conclusion, yes, this new map is right, that there is no self, there is no permanent self, um, things come and go. And you will just naturally let go. Um, that kind of attitude is defeatist. It basically says that you're, the best you're going to get is an undisturbed mind as it's always been in the past. Um, there's nothing better than this. And that um, simply seeing the fact that things are processes is enough to let you let go of them and not try to p place any hopes that processes, uh, things that arise and pass away, are going to give any real happiness. Um, the Buddha was not a defeatist. And that's certainly not the picture of the mind that he, 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 he draws in his analysis of why we suffer. He actually says that we fabricate our experience. If you look at dependent core arising and you don't get overwhelmed by the details, one of the things you'll notice is that there's a lot of activity that comes prior to receiving input, sensory input into the mind. 
you know, particularly right after the factor of ignorance is what he calls fabrication. This is what we're going to be talking about. And the three kinds of fabrication. There's bodily fabrication, which is the way you breathe. There's verbal fabrication, there's the way you basically talk to yourself. And his analysis of this is interesting. He says it's directed thought and evaluation. You direct your thoughts to a particular topic and then you comment to yourself about it. Um, there are actually some languages. Um, Thai is one of them, Chinese is another one. But the basic sentence structure is topic-comment. It's not just subject-verb-object. You have a topic and then you comment on the topic. And that's basically directed thought. You choose the topic, then you comment on it. And then the third form of fabrication is um, mental fabrication, which is perceptions and feelings. Feelings here are feeling tones, feelings of pleasure, pain, either pleasure nor pain. And the perceptions are the labels that the mind places on things. And these either can be visual images or they can be individual words. Um, and the mind will flash these things at you in kind of a subliminal way. Years back, I was visiting a friend back east, and he was watching that, that horrible show, 24 Hours, and he wanted to see how a monk would, re re would react to 24 Hours. Well, this monk looked at it for a minute and went to the other side of the room. Um, but then you know, they had an advertisement on for Fox News. And because this monk had not been watching TV for a long time, he actually saw the subliminal messages on screen. They flashed these quick things, says, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. And I asked the, my friend, I said, this Fox News is getting awfully blatant these days, isn't it? He said, oh yeah, that's Fox News, that's always the way they've been. I said, no, did you see those messages? He hadn't. But they're there. And the mind sends these little messages to you at the same time. It will flash a picture of something, a word or a picture, and that will influence how you're experiencing things. These processes all come prior to sensory input. Like the mind, if, it, if the mind does these processes under ignorance, you're going to prime yourself for suffering, no matter what comes up. Good things come up, you're going to suffer about them. Bad things come up, you're going to suffer about them, because the mind is doing these processes in ignorance. On top of that, the things that we tend to cling to, the Buddha calls the aggregates, it's good to look into those, because he says the aggregates don't just come at you ready-made. You also has a, you all play a role in processing them, and again, fabricating them as well. And you fabricate them for a purpose. In other words, you're looking for the pleasure that they have to provide. He says we fabricate formness for the sake of having a form. We fabricate feelingness, perceptionness. It's, it's, a, it's a peculiar passage in the Pali. But what he's basically saying is that we have these potentials and they're coming in from our past karma four particular experiences of form, feeling, perceptions, thought constructs, and consciousness. And we go out and we shape them because we want these things as tools that we can use. Um, you sometimes wonder when the Buddha analyzed things into the five aggregates, why did he choose those particular five activities in the mind? And they are activities. He defines them in terms of verbs. They're not things. When you think of the term aggregate, you tend to think of you know, piles of gravel. But aggregate, the, the, the term in Pali, kanda, simply means heaps of things. But they're not really things, they're activities. And they're activities that we engage in basically for the sake of feeding. The Buddha said this is one of the things that defines us as beings. As a being, you are f trying to feed on pleasure. In fact, you create your sense of who you are 
around your ideas about what kind of pleasures you're going to look for. And then once you have that sense of who you are, that has to be fed as well. It's kind of like a vicious cycle. You have to get what you want, you have to become a being. And then to, become a, to stay on as a being, you have to continue feeding. And so we feed off these aggregates. And the aggregates are basically the processes that are involved in feeding. You look at an easy example about physical feeding. Of course, when we're talking about feeding in general, it's not just physical feeding, there's mental feeding as well. You feed off emotions, you feed off pleasure, you feed off um, relationships, all kinds of things. But we just think for a minute about physical feeding. First there's form, which in this case is your body, and also there's the form of the food out there. Secondly, there's feeling. You've got the feeling of hunger that you want to assuage, and then there's the feeling of pleasure that you hope to get out of feeding on whatever it is. There's perception in which you basically try to identify what's edible. And this is how little children basically navigate their way across the floor when they begin to crawl. They come across something and where does it go? Right in their mouth <laughs> to see if it's edible or not. And after all, you begin to have this perception. This is food, that's not food. And then the mind basically develops some more sophisticated perceptions of what's food and not food until you get to until you're French. And you're really sophisticated. <laughs> um, and then we've had some French people visiting us at the monastery. Was, um, and seeing the comments that they made about each other's food was pretty, was pretty amazing. The food was fantastic, but nah, not good enough. No. No. At any rate, that's perception. Fabrication is, oh, at the same time, you're not only trying to identify the food out there, you're also trying to identify your hunger. What are you hungering for? You learn how to identify that as well. Are you hungry for something salty? Are you hungry for something sweet? Whatever. You learn how to perceive these things. Then there's fabrication where you actually engage in the activities of taking what you found and making it edible. You get a raw potato and you, there are certain things you have to do to a raw potato before you can eat it. You get a piece of meat, there are certain things you have to do to the meat before you can eat it. Finding it and then fixing it. And then finally, there's consciousness, which is the awareness of all these things. So these are the activities by which we feed on our experience. This is one of the reasons why we're so attached to them, is because we need these tools in order to feed off things. And we cling to them. And, that, and the word clinging in Pali, Upadana, also means, that's another word to feed. So there's a double layer of feeding. The processes by which we get our food are things that we also cling to. We identify ourselves around this. We're the type of people who feed in a particular way. You look at personal ads, and what kind of food do you like? That's one of the things that goes out there. This is how I like to feed off my experience. I like to feed off walks in the evening and sitting by the fire and that kind of thing. This is how the mind feeds off of activities. We try to create experiences for ourselves that we enjoy feeding on. And this is how we suffer. And the mind is not simply passively waiting for things to come its way. It's out there looking. And this is the important part of the Buddha's analysis of why we suffer, is because we're out looking for things to feed on. And so it's not the case that we're just simply sitting, sitting there passively and something comes in and makes contact. We're out there looking for trouble. I mean, this is why we have the internet. <laughs> you turn it on, you know. It's not that it turns itself on and comes at you, you know. Although maybe someday it'll make it that way. I hope not, though. But, but basically, you have to turn it on. I mean, this is why we have hate radio. People want to get worked up. And so they turn it on. 
It's the mind is constantly out going out there looking for things. And so telling a mind like this that it simply has to be accept the fact that there is no happiness to be found through any of these activities and you just have to simply let go of the idea that you're going to find any pleasure out there. It's like saying, okay, because food is impermanent, you will stop eating. And we all know that food is impermanent, but we continue eating anyhow because we have this need to keep going for this. And so what the Buddha is going to attack is that need to keep continue feeding, which is why we have to do more than just note things as they come and they go and be okay with their coming and going. We have to look back in at why is it that the mind needs to feed? What is it lacking? Can we provide it with something that will not need to feed? In other words, is there a pleasure out there? Is there happiness out there that can be be experienced without having to have this activity of going out and feeding? Because the feeding itself is the suffering, the clinging, the continued activity. That we have to keep producing this because look, not only is your experience, it's for the sake of something. It's not that just you're simply passively getting it. You're out there looking for the sake of something. And you are actually going out and engaging in effort so that you can have their experience. We tend to think of things coming at us, but we're also going out to get them. You can see this clearly in cases of people who've been blind from birth and they have they figured out that there are certain operations they can do that actually give them their sight. But most of these people, once they get their sight, have not developed the parts of the brain that can actually interpret what's coming in. You know, we, we've learned how to, those of us who have eyes that learn how to see, we know, we know how to interpret you know, what we're seeing right now in terms of three-dimensional space and all the other things that we need in order to make sense of all this stuff that's coming to bombard us. Well, that, that activity is going out, going out, going out all the time. And so there's an effort there. In fact, the Buddha says we're conscious of, or this effort actually comes prior to the input coming in, which means that this experience by which we're trying to feed is an effortful thing. That's why there's stress there all the time. And even though there are these potentials coming in from our past karma, we are actually more aware of our present karma, which is going out to try to shape them, even before they come in. It's an interesting idea. And it's your present karma is prior to your experience of past karma. And so what the Buddha is trying to get us to do is to do this process with knowledge, with awareness. Which is why we have to, quote-unquote, exert a fabrication against certain defilements. And what we do then is we have to change the way we breathe around, say, anger, the way we think to ourselves about the anger, whether we talk to ourselves about the issue that has us angry. And we have to learn how to see how we perceive these things and change our perceptions. This is one of the reasons why for, with physical or bodily fabrication, we work with the breath as our main topic because we want to sensitize ourselves to the breath energy in the body as we go through the day so that we can see to what extent does the way I'm breathing create an irritation, to what extent does it create a sense of not being comfortable in the present moment so I can't handle things properly. Let's go back and learn how to do the breathing process with knowledge, with awareness, so that when anger comes up, you learn how to breathe through the anger as your first line of defense. Whatever tension is coming up in the body, you learn how to breathe through it. This is one of the basic skills you need to develop as a meditator. Secondly, in terms of directed thought and evaluation, you have to look at yourself. How are you talking to yourself about the object? And again, this is why we do 
Directed thought and valuation, you've probably heard this in another context. These are the factors of the first jhana, the first state of right concentration. As you're talking to yourself about the breath and evaluating the breath and learning how to adjust the breath, you're getting more and more sensitive to how you are discussing things here in the present moment. So that when you start discussing other things, you're like, why did my stupid neighbor park his car in front of my, you know, in front of my driveway? Okay, you can look, okay, I've got to talk to myself in a way that is not going to get worked up. I've got to learn how to you know, reformulate the issue. So you learn how to do that with knowledge as well. And then the same with perceptions and, and feelings. And when we're working with the breath, we're trying to use a perception of the breath that allows us to stay there. And it gives rise to feelings of comfort. Then we can learn how to take that knowledge and use it in the, in the course of the day. When something comes up, okay, what's the underlying perception that has you irritated about a particular person, even though the person has done done very few things? A lot of this is cultural. When I was in Thailand, I'd be sitting in a room talking to people, and someone would come in and just make a few comments and then leave. And I looked around, and everybody else in the room was upset. And this is when I was just learning Thai, and I hadn't realized, okay, what that person had done was he he had not put the polite markers at the end of his sentences. The little ha, wa, whatever. If it was wa, you, you know, it's, you're ready for a fight. You know. If it was ha, it's okay. You know. That's it. You know. The difference between ha and wa can, you know, can be the difference between a, a peaceful family and an unpeaceful family. And we have the same sort of thing in English you know, with our tone of voice. Little things that can drive people up the wall. You have to ask yourself, to what extent do I want my perception of these things to control my behavior? If you want to drive a non-native speaker crazy, try this sentence. I didn't say you were stupid. 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 It's those little things that can drive you up the wall. And so you've got to learn how to be very sensitive to that. And we do this you know, going through, the, through the meditation. This is why concentration is such an important part of the practice. It's not simply getting your mind still so that you can you know, understand the truths of the Buddhist teachings. You want to see, get hands-on practice with these processes of fabrication. Learn how to do them well. Because ordinarily, as we're feeding off of the aggregates, it's like feeding chickens. You know, we nourish these things. We're trying to create these aggregates because we're going to get some pleasure out of them. So it's like feeding the chickens so we can get the eggs. But then we tend to be not very discerning about what we're getting out of the chicken. So that whatever the chicken produces, we eat it. You know? You know, not only the eggs, but also the chicken shit. You know, it just goes right in. And then we don't realize that what we're raising is the chickens from hell. Because at night they come and they peck out our eyes. <laughs> and we haven't made the connection. And so we've got to learn how to see the connection. This, these are the things that I'm feeding, and this is the suffering that's coming back from the process that I'm trying to feed these things. I think I'm going to feed something off of them or get some food out of them. But they're also coming to attack me. The Buddha says this with the aggregates. We feed the aggregates, but they come back and they chew on us. We're getting chewed up by form. We're getting chewed up by feelings. 
perceptions, fabrication, consciousness, if we don't do them with knowledge. If we're doing them with ignorance, they're going to be the cause of suffering. If we do it with knowledge, they actually become part of the path. So when you're formulating a fabrication, say you're dealing with anger. One, check in, how are you breathing right now? Secondly, okay, what are you telling yourself about the issue? And then thirdly, what are the perceptions you have around this? When you're passing judgment on other people, and the Buddha didn't say passing judgment is bad. The whole, the whole path is basically about judging which is a better form of happiness, which is a less worthwhile form of happiness. But when you're judging other people, what image do you have of yourself in relationship to them? Oftentimes you're the judge sitting up here on the bench and they're way down there. And you, you can pass judgment on them as ever you like and it doesn't really affect you, you think. But the Buddha gives another image. He says it's like you're walking across the desert. You're hot, trembling with thirst. You come across a little pool of water in a cow's footprint. Now you realize if you try to scoop up the water in the footprint, you're going to get it muddy. So you have to get down on all fours and slurp it up. Now, it's not a pretty picture, and you would not like having someone come and take a photograph of you while you're doing this, but you know, in, a, in a situation like that, it's necessary. He said, in the same way, when you're dealing with someone who's been you know, misbehaving in either their bodily behavior or their verbal behavior, you've got to look for their good qualities. Because otherwise, you, know, you are going to be hot, trembling, and thirsty. You're going to lack the water you need. And... When if you're living with a world where it's nothing but human beings that are horrible people, you're not going to be treating them well. You need the water of their goodness. So you're not the judge sitting up here. You're that person who needs the water of the goodness of other people. Otherwise, you're like that cartoon that was in The New Yorker. Two female poodles are sitting in a bar. <laughs> you know they're female because they have makeup, you know, and then... <laughs> And one of them, they're both looking kind of uh, disgusted with the world. And one of them is saying, they're all sons of bitches. <laughs> well, if everybody is a son of a bitch, what are you? I mean, <laughs> you've got to look at, other, you need other people's goodness. You have to hold that perception in mind. In fact, this is a lot of what the Buddhist teachings are. You, you notice when you read the Pali Canon that the most entertaining parts are the analogies. Those are the parts that stick in the mind. And that's with a purpose. The Buddha is giving you new images, new perceptions to hold in mind. There's the famous one about the bandits have pinned you down, with, you know, pinned your arms and legs down, and they're cutting off your limbs with a two-handled saw. And the Buddha says, even in that case, you would have to have goodwill for them. You start with goodwill for them, and then you spread the goodwill for the entire universe. If you don't have goodwill for them, he said, you are not following my teaching. And then he asks the monks, okay, when someone comes and says nasty words to you, if you hold this image in mind, are there words more than you can bear? No. So learn how to change your perceptions around things. We think about people doing things or saying things that are horrible. One of the perceptions the Buddha has is that this is normal for the human race. He said, there are these kinds of speech in the human world. There's true speech and there's false speech. There's kind speech, there's unkind speech. There's speech that's well-meaning, there's speech that's not well-meaning. And so what you're, what you're being exposed to right now, is it anything new? This has been in the world all along. It's not outrageous that you are being treated this way. 
And if you can hold that image in mind, you are not going to react in unskillful ways, and you'll be able to actually deal more skillfully with the situation. This doesn't mean you have to just sit there and take it, but it means don't get worked up. Be calm. And then as my grandfather taught my brother, my mother was a novelist, and her characters in the novels had strange names, and so she named us. I actually had the most normal name in the family. My older brother was Galen, and my younger brother was Giles. And we're living in a farm. You know. <laughs> and you go to high, you know, grade school and farm in a farming community. If your name is Galen, your name is Giles, you're going to have to defend yourself. And my grandfather didn't think much of my mother's names. And so when Galen went to school, he took him up to the side and he said, Okay, Galen, people are going to make fun of your name at the school. You're going to have to learn how to fight. So my grandfather had been an amateur boxer when he was young, so he taught my brother how to box a little bit. And so he was boxing along. And, and as my grandfather got more and more aggressive, and my brother just lost it and started flailing, and my grandfather put his hand on his head and said, Okay, stop. Don't ever lose it. If someone comes and does something that you don't like, grow cold, and then knock them out. You know? <laughs> so it's much more effective if you're dealing with other people if you don't get worked up. You can knock them out. <laughs> but you do it skillfully. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that you just take things, but you have to learn how not to react. You have to hold the perceptions in mind, and you have to hold the mental dialogue that you have in your mind in a way so that you can actually deal more effectively, so that you can know how to do this fabricating process with skill and rather than with out of ignorance. And so this is one of the reasons why the Buddha said, with a lot of your defilements, you have to exert a fabrication. But you do it knowingly. Because it's only through fabricating that you can actually get to the unfabricated. It's not, it's not that nirvana is going to come and give us nirvana. And this is why we say the Buddha was not a defeatist when it comes to the possibility of happiness. He said, it is possible to use this process of fabrication to take you to the threshold of the unfabricated. Now, one, of, one of his names for the Eightfold Path was unexcelled victory in battle. He was not just saying, well, I just accept the way things are and give up on the idea of happiness. He says, you have to learn how to use this process of fabrication, which you've been doing unskillfully, out of ignorance, Give it some knowledge, do it with knowledge, and then it can take you to the un unfabricated, which, which is the happiness which does not require feeding. And it's when you get there, okay, that's, that's how you stop getting hungry. You don't deny yourself food. You don't say, well, I'm not going to eat food anymore because, gosh, my stomach is impermanent and food is impermanent. That's not going to work. You're trying to stop feeding that way, and part of your mind is going to go out sneaking for midnight snacks. You want to say, okay, I need to feed knowledgeably, and I need to feed in a way, as the Buddha said, the Eightfold Path is a path of fabrication. You've learned how to fabricate your way to the threshold where the mind touches the unfabricated, and then you don't need to feed anymore. So this, this is why the, the attitude of, I'll just take whatever comes up and be non-judgmental and be non-reactive, does not work. It works in a few situations, but overall it's not going to work. And the Buddha is actually telling you, perfect your powers of judgment. You know, try to figure out what is a worthwhile pursuit of happiness and what is not a worthwhile pursuit of happiness. Or when you have two kinds of happiness pr presented to you, which is the better? You want to go for it long term, 
You want to go for a harmless. We have to be able to judge these things. The insight is, is a value judgment. And so you're perfecting your powers of judgment as you fabricate. If you look at this in terms of you know, looking for food and fixing food, you learn to tell you know, whether your food is really, really edible, really good for you. So you have to use your powers of judgment. You have to have preferences. It's simply learning how to do it with more knowledge, with more awareness. That's how it works. So those are the thoughts I had tonight to get you ready for this weekend. Are there, are there any questions? Yes. You have to look at how it's having an impact in your mind. Um, and if you can view it as a kind of generosity, that you're going to give some time to help a particular cause, that can be your form of generosity. But it's always with generosity that you know, the Buddha has a few comments surrounding what's wise generosity. One is, you know, no one else can tell you what you should do or shouldn't do or give, that's basically. When the king one time came to the Buddha and said, where should a gift be given? And the Buddha says, wherever you feel inspired. So there's no should that anybody's going to impose on you. But you have to look, is this, is this gift harming me? Is it harming other people? And a way of seeing that if it's going to harm you is, what's, what's happening to your meditation practice? To what point are you getting, what point are you getting too burned out or you're getting too involved? Um, secondly, what kind of people are you getting involved with? You have to look carefully at the people that, that you are banding together with and what kind of attitudes they have and what kind of values they have. Are they really in line with the Dharma? So you have to, you have to judge that, the case for yourself. First question is: I mean, The Buddha actually lists, you know, finding admirable friends as one of the most basic you know, stages of the practice, because that will have an influence on what you get to hear and what values you're picking up, and what you know how you are engaging in mental fabrication and verbal fabrication. You pick up examples from how other people do this. Um, now you can't surround yourself totally with good people all the time, but the people that you look for for your kind of emotional support. The people that you look for, that you you, know, you go to them for advice, 
be very picky about that. Be very, you know, judge, trying to judge as wisely as you can. Are these people good for me? As for harmlessness, I mean, the, the Buddha, it's interesting, the Buddha's topic, uh, his discussion of the way you harm other people is not so much by breaking the precepts. He says you harm yourself by breaking the precepts. You harm others by getting them to break the precepts. You treat them as agents, and that they're responsible for their happiness. And if you try to move in on them and get them to do things that are unskillful, that's going to be for their long-term, long-term suffering. That's the worst harm you can do. In terms of vegetarianism, this is really an individual matter. I mean, the precepts don't require it. It basically comes down to the precept is either you do it yourself or you tell somebody else to do it. Now, as far as your indirect impact on other beings, I mean, there's no way that's going to end. But you can decide for yourself and you want to say, I want to take it a step further. But again, you have to look at your own personal health. I know a lot of people who try vegan diets and it's just not working. So you have to look at that as well. As far as vermin in your house, um, what kind of vermin are we talking about? The ants that never go away. Your ants? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, ants are easy. Um, they don't like powder, like talcum powder, or they don't like cinnamon. Um, they also don't like cayenne pepper. So find their routes and block them. And you have to figure out we're living in a world where other beings you know, want to live too. And you have to say, okay, this is my space. Um, Please don't invade my space. You can have your space, and part of their space may be the walls of your house. <laughs> but you say, you know, as long as you don't come crawling across me at night, <laughs> we're going to learn how to live together. It's, it's good. I mean, try to figure out a little bit of ant psychology. And <laughs> it makes you more sensitive to the needs of the beings in the world. <laughs> Okay, the, the Pali word is sankara, which is sometimes used, called what volitional formations. It's, it's the intentional element in how you engage in the world and the way in which you shape your experience. And so what you've got is you've got there are potentials in your experience that kind of come in from your past karma, and you have these skills in learning how to create an experience out of them that you can understand. Right. Things come in, and you have to put a perception on them to identify what is that, and then you talk to yourself. Well, now, now that I know what that is, how do I feel? All of this is called fabrication. And the way the Buddha talks about the breath as bodily fabrication is because there is an intentional element in the way you breathe. You know, you decide when to breathe in, when to breathe out. A lot of this has gone on to automatic pilot. But there are times when you can be aware of I could I can choose to shorten my breath, I can choose to lengthen my breath. It's one of the few bodily processes over which you can have exert some conscious control. And you want to be a little bit more conscious about how you breathe, because otherwise an emotion comes in and it takes over the breath. 
and then you find yourself irritated and unable to deal with the situation. So you want to look at what is your intentional element in the present moment. That's what fabrication would be. They're not always. They're not always positive. Oh, okay. All right. it, it, it can be negative too, because right. we're, 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 we're as I said, these are processes we often do in ignorance. And you know, I was talking about you know, fabrication in terms of meditation as a positive way of doing this, but you can fabricate anger, you can fabricate you know, greed, you can fabricate all kinds of stuff. This is really an individual thing, because these people usually have, will have some little part of their lives which is not totally black and white, and you have to find that. And start and say, well, here's an area where you can actually see this, that you can change the way you think, and then try to work from that. But that requires that you know the person really well. If, if, if it helps you relate, that's perfectly fine. You can, do, you, do you need to focus on like the internal part of the object and then bringing yourself into there, or do you just generally focus on the feelings? I, I generally focus on the feelings. I mean, I don't, I can, because I've seen anatomy, I know where my liver is, but otherwise I couldn't tell you, you know. But, but if you find, especially that there's an area where there's a lot of tension, um, and you can, it helps to figure out okay, well, exactly what muscles do I have there. Because um, sometimes you realize that what you thought was a bone and you accepted the fact that it was stiff is actually muscle. <laughs> and you realize, oh, I, I can actually relax that. <laughs> That's good to know.
Well, this is called preventing unskillful qualities from arising. <laughs> it comes. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's the part of the practice that tends to get underrated, i.e., at the end of a meditation, ask yourself, okay, what are my challenges going to be today? And can I think of something that might work? And do this before you leave meditation. And how old is the daughter? She's four. She's four. Yeah. Well, you have to ask, okay, what is it precisely about that time of day? You know, what, what is what, what is your concern? Is it some of the some of the kid at school? Is it you know, what is it? Try to ask her. And be, and before she gets into the fit, ask, okay, notice the next time you get into a fit, you know, what was it that sparked the fit? And tell mommy about it, you know. Because sometimes they don't they don't feel, you know, that they can talk to you about it. Just make them know that yeah, they can talk. But the idea that you, they can sense, if they can sense it coming on, you make them more responsible. So it's not you trying to solve their problem and say, hey, look, you know, when, when you come out of the car and you lose, you lose your temper, um, this is not good for you. Make sure you know, you're miserable about, about this. And mommy wants to know, okay, what are you thinking about that brings this on? Try to be a little bit more conscious and see what she comes up with. One of my... Student, one of my teacher's students had a daughter who had epileptic fits, and she'd actually done a lot of damage to herself because you know, she, you know she would just fall down on her face, fall down on her head, without warning. And you know, as we were talking to her, and John Fuller one time said, "Well, how do you feel before it comes on?" And she said, "Well, I've never noticed." He said, "Well, try to notice." And she realized that she could sense it was coming on, and so she stopped having to fall down on her head. You know, she would sit down. So try to get her to be a little bit more aware of what's going on. are showing where the problem is. It's in your breath. It's the way you're breathing around it. One. And then there's there's layers of dialogue. And there's the, the dialogue says, okay, rationally you should not be thinking this, but this part of you is that I'd like to hold on. Okay, ask, okay, what, do you, what would you feel deprived of if you didn't hold on? Because some of us feel that our emotions are, are only real, the real me, and if I don't hold on to my emotion, I'm going to lose my identity. And you have to say, okay, well, let's just breathe through that for a bit and see if that's true. Don't argue with it directly. Just put a question mark. And say, and because we talk about the felt reality of the emotion, you're feeling it in the body. You're feeling it because of the way you breathe. 
And so I say, okay, can, can I breathe a little bit more calmly? And whatever voice comes up in the mind says, I don't want to do that, that's the voice you want to look for. And then you get to the next layer, layer of conversation, let's put it that way. No, there's a, I mean, in the first jhana, one of the factors is directed thought and evaluation. And the whole purpose of the evaluation is to get the mind, if you think of the mind and the breath as two things that you're trying to put together, you ask yourself, okay, what is there about the breath that the mind doesn't like? What is there about the mind that's not willing to settle down? Okay, we've got to deal with that. You kind of, but one image I used one time in Thailand, it was a total disaster because of Thai cultural things. It's like a dog lying down. You know, the dog lies down, but first has to scratch here, scratch there, scratch here, scratch there to make it more comfortable. It lies down, oops, there's a stone, gets up, it scratches the stone away, and then it lies down again. And so there's the same thing. To what extent is the breath uncomfortable? You've got to work with that. And also, what, is your, what attitudes are you bringing in right now that are preventing you from settling down? And you've got to think, think your way into being willing to settle down, too. And that's what all the evaluation is about. And then finally, once once the, you've got a snug fit, okay, then you can just kind of go right for it without having to do all this thinking. But the thinking, there's one interpretation that the thinking is just kind of this unfortunate wobbliness in the mind that you have to get past. It's actually doing the work to get you settled down. It's an important part of getting things together. Everybody satisfied? <laughs> okay. No, I mean that's 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 the practice. You've got to have preferences. And it's just that hopefully as the practice evolves, your sense of what is skillful will evolve as well. And your ability to 
recognize it will get quicker. You learn how to deal with it with more maturity. It's, it's an evolving process. Notice how the Buddha taught Rahula. He didn't say if you know if you if you do something unskillful, you're a bad boy. He says, okay, if you do something unskillful, this is what you do. And once you have that permission that you okay, I you admit that it's unskillful, then it takes a lot of the sting away. Because the sting comes and oh, that that was horrible. I don't want to admit that to myself. I'm going to hide it. That's the sting. Life making a mess of things, yeah. Yeah, because you know, you're beginning to see this is a process that I can step back from, step away from, and your identity is not bound up in that as much. And we'll be getting into this tomorrow, but the, the Buddha talks about how if you're trying to get past something that's unskillful, first you have to see when it's arising. Secondly, you have to see when it's passing away. And the arising is not just arising. He says, you look for the origination, which means when it's arising, what else is arising at the same time? Like your daughter. When the fit comes on, what was her perception that got her got all upset? And then when it passes away, okay, what happened? Why did it pass away? And that's helpful for two things. One is that you see it's connected with something, and secondly, you realize, okay, that's, that doesn't have the solidity that you thought it had. Then the next step is to see, okay, what is the allure? Why do I like this? And this is an area where a lot of us tend to hide it. You know, we, we don't like our anger, we don't like our anger, but, but why do we love it? You know? <laughs> and you've got to learn how to learn how to see that with enough calmness to have been, oh yeah, I go for this because I thought I'm getting that out of it. Again, it's like seeing, you know, where are you feeding? And sometimes we, we don't want to be seen feeding certain things, you know, eating certain things. There was a 
Anagarika I heard about in, I think it was Chithurst, who was really on everybody's case. The slightest little Vinaya infraction or imagined Vinaya infraction, he was on him. And then one day one of the monks happened to go into the storeroom and they found the Anagarika eating the chocolate like I was just mouth, it was hand, it was, he was just gorging himself on the chocolate. And he looked up at the monk and he said, I don't want you to be seen in your face. And that's a lot of what the mind is like. You know, there are certain things that we feed on and we don't want anybody to see us feeding on that. And we won't admit to ourselves that we're feeding on it. And if you don't admit to yourself, you can't work with it. So this is another reason why we try to get the mind in a good, solid state of concentration. So it feels more solid. You can see these things and not feel so threatened by them. Then you want to see the drawbacks. This is the fourth thing. What are the actual drawbacks of giving into this allure? And when you can see that the drawbacks are not worth, I mean, the, the pleasure you get out of it is not worth all the drawbacks, yeah, that's when you develop dispassion, and the dispassion is the escape. So again, you've got to prefer the escape. So there's a preference there. And that means you have to give up your your armor that you build around certain ways of feeding that you you're hiding from yourself. Sometimes it starts with one of those little subliminal perceptions yeah. that got you sad. And then you ask, them, why am I sad? And then you can think of all kinds of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that's interesting to me is, you know, I'm, when I'm driving, I'm, I'm watching myself as I'm driving. And sometimes, you know, someone will make me mad. And I'm like, ah, you know, I'll get mad. And then, <laughs> forgive me, I was going to flash my lights at somebody. Mm-hmm. And instead, I turn on the that's called fabricating an ignorance. <laughs> it's called fabricating an ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and we we do switch our moods pretty quickly like that. So what you've got to look out for is, one, is you get yourself into a bad breathing rhythm, and that can make you down. You know, they did those experiments with people trying to recreate facial expressions. And simply creating the facial expression of sadness, they felt pretty miserable at the end of the day. So how are you holding your body? How are you breathing? And then be quick to notice, okay, when a little perception comes in that sort of sets things off. Because sometimes it's you know the, it's the physical fabrication that can create the mental fabrication or produce certain mental fabrications. Sometimes it's the other way around. I mean, the, the influences go back and forth. Mm-hmm. In my um, personal relationship with my family and friends, um, it's really like good communication is really important. 
appropriate in the DAMA context to say DAMA friend, and how much is it just taken to discussion and kind of watch it? It really depends on the individual. I mean, when the Buddha talks about your dealings with people who have wronged you, I mean, there are two contexts. One is forgiveness, and the other is reconciliation. Talking out is the reconciliation part. In other words, you want to have a continued relationship. And so you have to sit down and talk about, okay, what went wrong? What values were ignored? Um, and how can we get back on, on track so that we have the sense that we have common values together? Now, when you can do that, fine. But there will be a lot of cases where you can't. Now, in your family, you want to be able to do that because you know, you've got a long-term commitment there. You know, with members in the, in the Dharma community, sometimes it's just somebody comes in, somebody goes out, and it's kind of, there's not that sense of commitment together. And if you find that this person is not willing to talk about it, well, that's when you have to sit down on the question and say, okay, I forgive the person. And forgiveness here doesn't mean that you have to love them. It's simply that you know, you're not going to get back at them. And so it's a combination of you have to look when when reconciliation is possible and desirable, you go for that. And when it's not, then you have to sit with it. Yes. Exciting anger, you have to be really careful with that. Um, there, there, mu there must be other ways to get changed. If you're really angry, then you're not thinking straight. I mean, you can see that there's something wrong, and you figure, okay, what's, what's the best way to get people also to see that this is wrong, so that we can actually act and, and get a skillful solution. In his case, I'd say, you know, may he understand the causes for true happiness and act on them, and that's basically what goodwill is about. Um, and if you, you know, if there's really something, and there are a lot of things wrong with our society that need to be changed, what's the most effective way of doing that? In a way that we can get as many people on board as possible. That's how I would think. Again, if you can look at social action and political action in the context of generosity. It puts a very different cast on it. What would be the most generous way of dealing with a situation so it actually would cause you know, a change for the better? Okay. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I look forward to seeing some of you at least tomorrow. <laughs> so, good night.